Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. Matrix Fitness is one of the world's leading edge manufacturers and suppliers of human performance equipment. I am proud to have them as a sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast because I know they are dedicated to getting more people moving. Movement is medicine. All humans are designed to move. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need movement more today than ever. Stuck in our homes, restricted from much of what we have done socially, getting physical by any means possible is essential. Whether you are at home and looking for equipment that will keep you moving, or you train people for a living, Matrix is there to provide you with the equipment you need to succeed and the advice to make it happen. Matrix has more than 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix also delivers a wide range of complete programming solutions to build strength, explosiveness, speed, and agility in athletes of all kinds. In this last year, Matrix engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as head of the Matrix Canada performance team to help you make the right decisions on your performance needs. For more information and a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. This podcast has always been about exploring the journey of my guests, and if you're a regular listener or an occasional connector, you'll know that the stories and the lives of my guests are always marked with changes in direction, overcoming challenges, and occasionally moments of misdirection. These days, having someone in your corner that you can confide in, find counsel without judgment, and the opportunity to learn from their insights is likely more valuable than ever before. It's really the reason I started this podcast, so the voice of my guests could provide some of this truly needed insight. But I've also recognized during my journey that providing a place of community and a place for counsel and insight would be extremely valuable for my listeners. So I am embarking on a new journey to support you. The Leave Your Mark Life Lab will open its doors to a small group of hand-selected professionals who want to live their best lives. You can read about this program on our website, lymlab.com, today, where you can also catch the latest episodes of this podcast. I will be launching the application process in the next week, and the program will open its doors in February. I hope you'll join me so I may help you leave your mark. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dana Delval. Dana works with people through weekend retreats, one-on-one coaching, and her writing and speaking to inspire and motivate people to shake up their day today, to find what's beyond their current reality, to get comfortable being uncomfortable, and to articulate and create a tangible plan of action and pursue their next dream. Dana and her husband, Dr. Maz Mary, 
host a twice-weekly live stream called The Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD around their mission to openly share their experiences with Dr. Mary's fall into alcoholism and climb back to sobriety. They are committed to helping people and couples navigate the treacherous addiction path to hope and healing while also helping to erase the shame and stigma of addiction. She is also president and CEO of the Arts Partnership in Fargo, North Dakota, an umbrella arts nonprofit agency dedicated to cultivating the community through the arts. You can find more at DanaDelVal.com. She writes, speaks, and lives by straddling extraordinary at the intersection of remarkable and so, so ordinary. And she thinks most people are there too. She's also a mother of her 26-year-old son, Quinn. I'm pleased to have her on the show today. Welcome, Dana. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. <laughs> so you're a veteran of talking on uh, on podcasts, I'm sure, or your own live stream. So this is not uh, somehow scary for you, I don't think. No, I'm, I'm, I guess you would say I'm a veteran talker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back. Where do you hail from originally? Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in the southwestern corner of North Dakota, kind of by the Montana-South Dakota border. Um, but I'm a lifelong North Dakotan. I had a, about a six-year period in Minnesota, right across the river. But bulk of my life has been in North Dakota for um, good and for bad. Hmm, cool. Well, it's interesting. I have been to a lot of U.S. states because I used to work in the National Hockey League, so we would travel all the time. But North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, these are not states I've gone to. We just finished, my wife and I just finished binge watching uh, Yellowstone. So we're uh, oh. you know, got, a, got a feeling for that part of uh, North America. But um, growing up there, what were your big influences as a kid? What did you sort of aspire to? Or when you laid down in the grass or the mm -hmm. dirt and looked up at the stars, what did you want to be? I always wanted to be a movie star. Always, always, always. Um, and that really was my life's plan until wow. I um, until I discovered uh, nine days after graduating from college with a theater degree that I was pregnant. And oh, wow. so it um, it kind of wrenched that in a lot of ways once I made the decision to keep that baby. So that's how I have a 26-year-old instead of a 26-year professional acting career. But... <laughs> You know, I, I can say on this end of it, I can look back at that 23-year-old girl and say, oh my gosh, you're going to be in for such a ride. A lot of it's going to be hard, but a lot of it's going to be amazing. So it's not the end of your world. It's just the end of what you thought was going to be one path. And, you know, mm. it took me down a totally different path back to North Dakota. Um, because as a single parent, it's hard to do that if you don't have family close by. So I ended up here and um, have just, you know, been really fortunate to actually have a professional acting career here. Um, I'm a union actor. I belong to the same union as Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman. And, mm. um, you know, you can do that work kind of from anywhere. It's an extraordinary time to be alive because, you know, you and I couldn't have done this a hundred years ago. We couldn't have done this 10 years ago, really. Right. right exactly. Um, and yeah. people are making movies on their cell phones and you know it's a completely different world than it was 25 years ago what attracted you to being a, a movie star or an actress why, why i just i just have always known that's who i am i'm a performer in my deepest dna i love nothing more than to be on stage interacting with an audience um sharing other people's stories sort of illuminating challenging topics through the arts. Um, and so I've done it 43 of my 46 years. I did my first play when I was six and really, really never looked back. And while today I don't aspire to be a Hollywood movie star, the work that I'm doing is the exact same. It feeds the exact same things in me. It's just that now I'm telling my stories and I'm engaging with people in a present way as opposed to putting up that fourth wall and, and telling a story that they cannot interact with in the moment. Mm -hmm. Who was uh, an actress or actor of your youthful generation that you in, were inspired by or looked up to when you were a kid? <laughs> Um, well, it's funny. She's she's kind of my age. I mean, she's a little bit younger than I am, but her career started so young. I would say probably some of those first big actors for me were um, Kate Winslet, uh, Emma Thompson, certainly. 
Uh, you can go way back and watch Catherine Hepburn films and Barbara Stanwyck films. And, um, you know, some of those great, great women of the 40s and 50s who had these just larger than life screen personalities, but also had fascinating lives. And that was a big piece of it for me was I wanted to have a fascinating life. I grew up in this by almost everybody else's standards, very rural part of the world, very removed from lots of things that other people would would view as being cultural touchstones. But I had libraries and books and community theater and my parents encouraged that artistry in me. And um, I just had a really interesting childhood. There's, there's a lot to be said for not having much else to do besides lying in the grass and imagining what clouds look like. It really does mean that nobody is putting any limits on you and you can kind of go wherever your imagination can take you. And I was lucky to have a great big imagination. What was it about performing that you most, uh, you most liked? Like, was it the adulation of the crowd or the uh, feeling of you creating something or the inspiration within what, what, what drove you there? Um, you know, it's probably changed over time. Um, when I was young, I liked how important I felt. You know, if I was doing a community theater production, I would get out of school early on performance dates to go home and sort of have an afternoon nap because I was going to be um, up late. And that always felt like I must be an incredibly important person to get to leave school. Um, but as I got older and started to understand the the process of putting together a character and a play, the process was really fascinating to me. How do I bring my own limited life experience to a completely different person who's lived other places, in some cases, other countries, often other time periods, often older than I was, um, with, with just utterly different lived moments that somehow I had to not just try to understand, but embody and and um, breathe life into. And I loved the challenge to that. Um, and then I loved the community of being on stage with other people. I loved the liveness of it. If something went wrong on stage, you had to figure it out in the moment. And I loved that. I'm I would not say I'm a thrill seeker. I'm, you're not going to find me jumping out of planes or bungee jumping, but I'm a very quick on my feet thinker. And so the the possibility that something could go wrong, always being right there, always being on the edge of that, I found terrifically thrilling. Um, mm. And then I just, I think I like the permanence of, of film. I like mm. that, that you could create something that long after you're gone will still have um, presence and value. So I think there are a lot of pieces of it and then as a as a writer, I I love the way playwrights use language. And I love to think about the lineage of actors who have come before me and my place in that long history of creatives. So there's a lot of pieces to it that I really love. Mm. What was the hardest part of it that um that you struggled with or didn't have quite the affinity for that you would wish you did or have mm. had to work on to have? <laughs> Well, I'm fairly tall and uh, leggy, for lack of a better way to say it. And so in college, I pretty much only played, um, we'll say women with questionable morals. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that is not who I am as a human being. <laughs> so uh, as silly as this sounds, I kind of had to unravel how how anybody could have that level of confidence, how somebody could enter a room and know that every eye was on them and have elected to be that. And, you know, you might say, but isn't that what you were doing by the very nature of being an actor? Yes, but it's one thing to play a character. It's another thing to be a character. And so, uh, you know, that that was always a really interesting challenge. The first kind of grown-up play that I did was a great, great British comedy called Noises Off. And I was 14 years old. I hadn't even been kissed yet. And I played a, a woman who was married to a man. It was their home that the play takes place in. And there were all these innuendoed lines that I absolutely, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I was somehow thinking back to them. And I thought, 
Oh my gosh, that's what that meant. You know, so I I looked mature for my age and so often was playing characters I just did not embody at all. I'm curious, actually, I was mentioning before that I just finished watching, binge watching Yellowstone. And I don't know if you've watched the the show, but there's a character in this girl named Beth who uh, I forget what the actress's name that plays it, but she's actually British and she plays this really strong-willed, you know, very... uh, almost nasty kind of character in it. And, and I saw her in an interview and she like is the complete opposite human being of what she plays, which it's kind of cool, but I'm kind of wondering how you invoke that. I mean, how does any a- an actor invoke something that's not them and find it in themselves? Like, how do you f- create that from nothing in essence? When yeah. You, you know? Well, um, when you're a young actor going through training, you you do um, exercises like um, there's this great this great exercise that I actually find applies beautifully to life, and it's called a goat sheet, and it stands for goals, obstacles, tactics, and expectations. And so the way that I relate this to non-actors is I say, think about being 15 years old and having a curfew and your best friend is going to have an all-night party. How in the world do you get your parents to say yes to you going to an all-night party? So your goal (laughs) is to go to the party. The obstacle is that you have parents who've set a curfew. What are your tactics How in the world are you going to convince them? You're going to do this. You're going to say, you know, I'm getting all A's this semester and it's been a really hard semester. And I practiced my instrument or I I went to um, basketball practice every night or whatever it is. And I kept up a job and I took the garbage out. And you come up with all of these really great things you've done because your expectation is that they will go, boy, you know what? You're right. You've earned this. You can go. And that's really how you begin to unravel a character who is nothing like you. Because at the end of the day, let's use this character, Beth, and I've not seen Yellowstone, but let's use this character. So she's she's a confident, strong, maybe even nasty character. From her perspective, all she wants is to win. She wants her expectation to go her way. So what's her goal? What are the obstacles? What tactics will she use? to get her expected outcome. Well, if you approach any character that way, suddenly the character is not good or bad. The character is just a person and they're just moving through life. Um, And they want exactly what you want, even though it's on the opposite end of the conversation. Your parents want to be able to prove to you that you can't go out all night. So their tactics are the exact opposite. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And that's really at its most, most, most stripped down, what character development is. So if you're playing a character who was alive in a time you've not lived and has experiences you've not had, you really can start there. And then you do research and you look to models and you um, you really start to pay attention to the conversation that they're having with the other actors in the scenes and you know, some playwrights will give you great stage directions and and great kind of internal emotional thoughts and some won't. Mm -hmm. And those, sometimes they're great and sometimes they're terrible. Not all playwrights understand how to talk to actors and vice Mm -hmm. versa. Um, So there are tips and tricks. And then there's just sort of saying, well, okay, I imagine that if I were a 1930s woman living through the Great Depression, but I'm on the East Coast and I've got four children. Well, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, what might what might I do in that instance? And then you go from there. So there's there's a well, there's process. a saying in in uh, high performance sport that you know the idea of performance under pressure. So you have practice, and then you have the big game or the big event, yep. right? Yep. And I assume there's a similarity in acting in the sense that you're you're obviously practicing your play or you're acting all the time, and then you have the show. Um, how were you at managing performance under pressure, and what was it that allowed you to be successful at that? Uh, the audience. Mm. So one thing that has been a really um, shattering piece of COVID for performers 
is that you know a lot of a lot of theaters have figured out how to transition their live performances to online streaming those kinds of things so so actors are still getting to act but there is no way to um adequately reenact that lived experience and i know that that is true not just for actors but also for athletes because my husband is english well forget that i said that he grew up in england he's irish oh my gosh i hope he never watches listens to this he's irish grew up in england so we watch a lot of premiership football we watch a Mm. lot of soccer at our house and the the difference in those players playing with no audience and playing with a crowd of, you know, 60,000 people, they showed up and played their games because they're professional athletes. They are built to be soccer players. Mm-hmm. They were playing, but there is a dramatic difference between scoring a goal when there's, you know, 40 people in a 60,000 person stadium and scoring a goal when half your stadium is filled with your supporters. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for acting. What an audience can do for you as an actor is, you know, they can they can lift the energy, they can spur you on, they can they can be the tears that you don't get to cry as an actor because that's not your job. Your job is to move them, not you. They can be the laughter, they can be all those things. And there is no way to replicate that if they're not there. So that's mm-hmm. the difference for me between um, rehearsal or practice and performing is you've got that immediate interaction with a group of people that when it's not there, it's a different experience. Hmm. So take me to um, university in your finishing your, your university degree and you get pregnant, as you said, take me to that moment. And, you know, are you in shock? Is this a, a game changer for you? And, and what, what does it do or how does it strike you at that moment for in your life? Yeah, it's um, it, certainly at that moment, the most devastating thing that had ever happened to me. And I'd had some other kind of crummy stuff happen along the way. But um, yeah, it, it was not just a game changer. It was a door shutter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I can now say, because I talk about it a lot, and so I've had a lot of time to really reflect on it in these past couple of years in particular, you know, you want to see the, the medal of a young actress Uh, put her in a highly fraught late at night moment with a plus sign on a pregnancy test. And you'll find out pretty quickly how dramatic she can be. Um, (laughs) You know, it, it was, uh, it it was a horrible, horrible, horrible moment Um, because, and I, I also can say this because my son and I have talked about it a lot. I was not rejecting him. I, he was not a thing. I was seven, nine days pregnant. I was rejecting this impenetra- impenetrable hurdle hmm. that suddenly said, oh, that thing you've been working for your whole life, that's gone. It's gone. Hmm. And, you know, it wasn't absolutely gone in the moment. I had, I had options. Abortion was legal. Um, I considered adoption. I had other options, but none of those options, there's no great option with an unplanned Mm. pregnancy, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at least there wasn't in my case. So um, yeah, it, it was terrible and it was devastating. And I, I found out I was pregnant in Southern Utah. I was doing theater for the summer. So, you know, there I was living this new phase of my life. I was a professional actor. I was getting paid. Um, and I was cooking up this baby simultaneously. So it was, it was a lot and it was, Mm. it was sad. It was a very Mm. sad time for me. Mm. And, um, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of kindness for that young girl today because at 22, you probably, if you can be, should be self-consumed and off pursuing exactly what you want to do because you finally feel like you have some legs under you and you think you know so much, even though you don't really. And, you know, you're as old as you've ever been and you're sure you're ready to go. And it really, it really stopped me in my tracks. Hmm. But that's how life goes. Right. So you have um, Quinn and you embark upon this journey of being a mom. How... 
you know, it does, it's not something that women talk about that as much, uh, and, and men struggle to talk about it too, but I, there's always this kind of uh, rosy dynamic around the idea of having a baby and that you're all of a sudden going to fall in love with this little being and everything else, and it, it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. And some women s- struggle with postpartum and all these different things that, you know, uh, people, I think, talk about more now than maybe they did 20-some years ago. Absolutely. But, you know... What what were you struggling with in the beginning between f- falling in love with this little being that you've created and what it's taken away from you in some sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I I can honestly say that I feel really fortunate that somehow I was able to create two parallel paths in my existence, kind of, or in my mental existence. So I, I never looked at Quinn and thought, boy, if not for you, I could have. Mm-hmm. Again, I, my pregnancy and my child feel like completely separate entities. Like if I were to say, well, I have a computer and a cow. Like those are not <laughs> the same thing. Um, and while I understand that one led to the other, they they have never felt like the same thing to me because once you meet a little person, then then your investment becomes in that little person. And I'm not saying to you, oh, I threw 100% of myself into that and I just forgot about acting. I didn't forget about acting. In fact, I would say that I lived in this very yin-yang kind of thing. I, I really surprisingly kind of took to parenting and loved loved this little person pr- pretty, pretty quickly and very effortlessly. And... Um, enjoyed a lot of that process and was devastated not to be acting. I mean, I had friends, you know, still in theater school and other friends who'd gone off and were doing the dinner theater circuit, which was still a big deal at that time and off doing cruises and moving to New York and Los Angeles. And I was living in the upstairs of a little house in Fargo, North Dakota, you know, poor as a freaking church mouse uh, with this baby no internet. I, you know, I often will say to Quinn, you don't remember this, but I used to have to wait until 11 PM because I had a sprint service where phone calls would go down to 10 cents a minute. So I couldn't make any calls long distance until 11 PM because I couldn't afford the regular rates. You know, if you look at a cell phone today, that's just inconceivable that in my child's lifetime, we've gone from that to this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I watched an incredible amount of uh, A&E biography. The people downstairs took pity on me and shared their, their cable cord with me. So I ended up having cable TV, which might be the only thing that saved my life because that first winter was so unbelievably cold. We often couldn't be outside at all. So I watched a lot of biography and I read a lot of, you know, whatever I had in the house. And I just, I just sort of did my job to the best of my ability, which was to be a present parent. And I decided that there was no way to set down this dream because it was, it wasn't a dream for me, like, you know, a 10 year old dreams of being a professional baseball player. And then somewhere in high school sort of goes, boy, I'm not even really starting on my high school baseball team. I probably can't go play for the Minnesota twins. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a realization that realization. I'll tell you now that realization still hasn't hit me. I have set down my desire to be an actor, but because I chose to set it down, not because it ever dawned on me that it's not a thing. It could absolutely still be a thing for me if I chose Mm -hmm. for it to be. Um, So I just held on to it. And I made funny space for it in my life. I I did a lot of regional commercials and I became a pretty successful voiceover actor. Um, And I did some theater still and those kinds of things. And I just just kept enough space for it that it kept enough of me alive that I didn't feel like I had absolutely sunk all the way past my head into quicksand. I, I was still breathing. Mm, okay. So you're, you're single parenting as you're going through all this. Yeah. 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 Until, until Quinn was 12. I I had a long-term partner who we met when Quinn was five, who is now my husband. Um, but we never lived together. So from zero to 12, it really was at the end of the day at nighttime, it was just Quinn and me. Mm, 
So I was reading the thing about uh, how you and your husband, Andrew, met. Uh, he was looking for a redheaded <laughs> Irish type girl that uh, yes. somebody made the connection. Um, yes. Tell tell that story for the listener. And then also like what, where, how, what do you fall in love with in this guy, so to speak? Mm. And where does it go? So um, August of 2001, I was supposed to watch a movie with a good friend of mine. I was in graduate school at this point for English, and um, he was supposed to come over after Quinn went to bed, and we were going to watch a movie. And it was really hot. And I lived at this point in the top floor of a old, old, old building, 45 stairs up, no air conditioning. It was really hot. (laughs) And so I'm kind of lying on my couch in sort of a heat stupor waiting for Peter to come over in about... I don't know, 1030, my phone rings and it's Peter. And he says, Hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was waiting for you to come over and watch this movie. And he said, I think you should uh, come down to Duffy's, which was this Irish bar a block and a half from my house that I'd never been to because I'm not a bar person. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, I'm not coming to Duffy's Quinn's in bed. And he said, well, I have somebody you need to meet. And in very me fashion, I said, well, how tall is he? And he said, well, he's taller than I am. And I said, well, is he taller than I am? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, well, I I can't come to Duffy's. He said, well, I'm going to put him on the phone. So he puts this man on the phone who's pretty clearly had more to drink than he necessarily should have. And he's a little bit slurry, but he's got this unbelievable accent. So we're talking, and I think his name is Matt, because who's ever heard of anybody named Maz? So we're talking and he's swearing like only a real Irishman can. And I'm thinking to myself, I can never meet this man because I can't bring him home to meet my five-year-old. Every third word out of his mouth is a swear word. (laughs) So I said to him, all right, Matt, uh, maybe we'll talk later. And he said to me, all right, lass, I'll speak to you soon. And I thought, oh my gosh, he lasted me. And I thought, well, I'm done. I'm done. So uh, I didn't talk to him again um, for three weeks. And then September 11th happened. And Mm. that day was so as everyone alive who was paying attention. I mean, I realize this is a very American perspective. As Americans will tell you, that day was so topsy-turvy. Everything Mm. felt like everything I'd ever believed in was suddenly kind of gone. And so I had had a dinner thing that I could not get out of. So my friend Peter was over watching Quinn and I came home from that and we were just sitting around kind of, you know, stunned. And I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to meet this guy, I'm never going to meet him at a bar because that's not my life. I can't afford a babysitter. I don't really drink. I'm not going to meet him at a bar. I looked around my apartment. There were 12 million Legos on the floor. And I thought, this is actually how somebody needs to meet me because this is my life. And Mm. and whoever takes me on, this is going to be his life too. I said to Peter, call Matt. And he said, who? And I said, Matt, call Matt. And he said, who's Matt? And I said, the Irish guy. And he said, oh, his name is Maz. And so we had that long conversation. And I said, fine, call Maz and see if he wants to come over. So um, he did. And it turns out that he had just come home from France that day. He was one of the last planes to land where it was supposed to land because he was in American airspace as those two planes hit those buildings or five accidents. And um, so he came over and I opened the door and, you know, he stepped over this huge pile of Legos and he came in and for whatever reason, Quinn had made Peter a crown earlier in the night. And so I introduced Maz to Quinn and, and Quinn trotted back to his bedroom and came out with another yellow crown and Maz put it on his head and wore it till Quinn went to bed. And then we sat up almost all night long and talked about travel and his PhD in plant cell wall biochemistry and my master's in English and all these things. And he left and I just thought, wow, there's a lot more than that accent. I mean, don't, do not mishear me. That accent was knock you over incredible. Um, so he's lucky he had the accent because I wouldn't have tolerated the swearing in any other way. 
<laughs> but we've been together ever since. <laughs> it reminds me of the movie Love Actually when the get, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie yes. when the British kid comes over and he's like meeting Colin. all the girls in the bar. Yes, yes. it was a <laughs> lot Colin, like that. I'm Colin, yes. Yes, everything Colin says is just dreamy. That's how Maz is. Yes. <laughs> so um, Maz is... His his world is what he what does he do exactly? He's a professor at a local university where my undergrad theater degree is from um, in the biological sciences department. He's a world expert in the potato cell wall, but mm. he teaches a lot of biology classes. An Irish boy with potatoes. Yeah, that makes... it's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And he happened to marry a woman who's not only not in love with the potato, but is a vegetarian to boot. So he's in a very funny household for him. (laughs) So obviously you talk in your show um, openly about his struggles and challenges. Um, When do you discover that the man you're with is having trouble with alcohol and how does that sort of become how do you deal with it as your problem? And then how do you solve it together? So um, when I first met him, he said to me, I have a whiskey a night, which again, I, I really still drink very little, drank almost nothing at that point and um, come from a family of no drinking. I mean, we didn't even take cough syrup at my house. So it was a, there just was no drinking. I, I was 13 years old before I even ever saw a beer mm-hmm. um, and never drank in high school, any of that. So he told me that it felt kind of like a lot to me, but I just thought, well, he's Irish. I, I don't know why people excuse the Irish, but we do. And <laughs> I have a limited view of what drinking looks like. So gosh, he's incredibly successful. He was postdocing at the time. Um, who am I to judge this? He must be fine. Okay. So then we were together almost seven years and we got married and I would say, I don't know, within two or three weeks, I thought, I don't think he's only drinking one whiskey a night. He might have a glass, but he's filling that glass multiple times. And it wasn't, it wasn't enormously problematic and it wasn't persistent, but I just was aware of it. So, okay, time goes on, and um, it it just was a very, very, very gradual descent into what I now know was full-on alcoholism. But through this whole process, so February 1st will be his five-year soberversary. So from 2008, when we got married, until 2017 was this decline, Um I I assumed that because he never got a DUI, he never crashed his car, he got up and went to work every day, that while he was drinking way more than I was comfortable with and he was really absent from our lives, he was here all the time, but he wasn't here at all. I assumed that because none of those other things happened, he had a, something was wrong, but it wasn't alcoholism. Um. And so we fought about it all the time because he just would be passed out in the basement and Quinn and I were upstairs living our lives. Um, And it was terrible. I mean, I thought I was doing what I'm pretty good at doing, which was sort of creating these compartments of living. Here's my job and here's Quinn and here's my marriage. And, you know, well, alcoholism or any addiction, really, you can't compartmentalize that. It just bleeds into everything. Mm -hmm. So I I really had looked for ways to get out and tried to figure things out. And, you know, he would sometimes agree with me that he was drinking too much and that he was going to try to get better. And uh, uh, um, I have come to believe that maybe the hardest kinds of addicts are the really, really smart ones because all addicts are chronic liars. Hmm. But really, really smart ones can tell better lies than, than maybe not the so smart ones. Hmm. Um, although by the end, his lies were as preposterous as anybody else's. I would come downstairs and he would have a glass of whiskey buried in the couch, which he would tell me wasn't his. Um, and there would be an ice cube in it. And he would say, well, that's from last night. And I would say, you know, our house is cold. It's not keep an ice cube solid cold. Um, and so uh, January 31st of 2017, he texted me that he'd had a nosebleed that would not quit. And he had had a lot of nosebleeds. 
um, for years. And so he went home, he canceled his night class, came home, bled all through dinner. I was just, things were bad at this point. So I didn't pay any attention to it. I went to bed and about two in the morning, he woke me up and he said, you have got to take me to the emergency room. Something is really wrong. And I walked into the bathroom and it looked like somebody had been shot in the bathroom. I mean, there was just blood everywhere. And I looked over at him and I mean, it was just cascading from him. So we went to the emergency room and long story short, he was gone for six and a half weeks. He was um, in the hospital for two weeks, including six days in a medically induced coma to come out of his alcoholism. They told me that would take anywhere from 18 to 24 hours and it took six days. Mm -hmm. Um, And then four and a half weeks in inpatient rehab. And then he came home and, um, you know, the work of us rebuilding our marriage began really at that point because up until that point, he was really focused on him, which was appropriate that the addict, he says this all the time because he's learned it from, from his treatment and his ongoing work, but the addict really has to take care of themselves first. You have to put your own oxygen mask on. You cannot help anybody else till you feel that you're in a place where you can help yourself. Hmm. So, um, the thing that was so incredible, and this can probably really only sort of happen when you live in these places where it's so damn cold, you just don't go out, is almost nobody in our lives knew he was gone. Mm. I, we we had never really told anybody that alcohol was a problem. I didn't tell anybody he was in the hospital. I didn't tell people he was in rehab. So a few people knew, his colleagues knew, because he had the semester off, that kind of thing. But um he came back and life just kind of picked up and we privately were working on this. And then in November of 2016, I started to get um, Facebook messages from people who were like, why is everything so great at your house? Because once he got sober and I figured out how to get through the pieces I needed to get through, our lives went from terrible to amazing. It really was the thing that kept us from being able to have any kind of life. Um, so we were traveling a lot. We were in Europe two and three times a year. I mean, things were amazing. He completely repaired his relationship with Quinn, for which I will always be grateful. Um, and things were just extraordinary. And people noticed it because for years he was kind of missing. And then all of a sudden he's present. So I said to him in November of 2016, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you say no, I will never ask you again, which is not at all who I am. I'm very dogged. And when I want something, I want it. Um, But I, I really meant this because there was a lot to lose with this question. And I said to him, would you be willing to publicly go forward and tell people what we've been through? Because nobody's understanding why things are great. And we've become the social media couple who only shows you the A side when there's actually this incredible B side that, I was feeling very proud that we had worked through and were in survival of. Hmm. And he said, well, let me think about it, which was a huge, huge step for him. I said, great. And he came back the next day and he said, yes. Hmm. So in February on his third soberversary, we launched this nine part 27 episode series of back and forth um, writings from each of our perspectives. And then we videotaped them and had a conversation. And then we did a live podcast every week where we were addressing the comments that were coming in. And so on my little website, which had had about 800 visits a month, I went up to 25,000 um, mm-hmm. in part because we ended up on the front page of our regional newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it opened this thing. Like we went from nobody knows to everybody knew And um, it was the single greatest thing we've ever done because when you're in that environment of addiction, at least for me, I'll only speak for me, in it, I thought, well, nobody will understand this. I can't tell this to anybody. You become so insulated that you forget that almost everybody's got alcohol or addiction in their lives, but you're sure you're the only one and that everyone will judge you so you say nothing. Mm -hmm. And when we opened the door, the people who came to us and said, me too, I'm struggling, my husband, my child, it was like a tsunami of people, which was incredible and hard. There were weeks that were really hard to know that all these people who were in our lives and strangers 
were suffering the way we had or much, much, much worse because addiction has so many, many dark sides to it. We'd, we're, our story actually was sad, but not there was no violence. There was none of that kind of thing. Um, so that ended in April of 2020. You know, the world fell apart somewhere in the middle. And um, then in July of 2020, we decided we would start this funny little daily dose program. So for 56 straight weeks, we did five days a week. And then in September of 2021, we moved it to twice a week. And so that is the very long answer, Scott, to how that all came about. Wow. How, um, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, one, you, you, this, you have this discovery, he leaves for six weeks, he comes back, you have a new human being in front of you. Yes. And you are obviously, I mean, uh, without using the right language, there are some scars, battle wounds Absolutely. from what you've gone through. How do you put, how do you put the sword down sort of your, your protective sword at that point and say, you know what, I'm going to give this guy a chance and I'm going to figure out how I can fall in love with him again or what have you. Yep. How, how did you work through that? I really credit a nurse. So we ended up, after they released him from the emergency room, they sent him upstairs because, because he was such an effective liar. He told them that he hardly drank. And so they decided he must have leukemia. That's why he was bleeding so much. So they sent him upstairs because they were going to do a bone biopsy. And... Um, a so we were up there for about 18 hours before he moved into this complete delirium tremor phase. Um, and after that happened and they finally got him into this medically induced coma, a nurse on the floor came up to me and said, um, this is, this is alcoholism and it's going to be terrible. Uh, and you're not prepared. Like I know you're not prepared from the five minutes I've spent with you. So she said, I have a journal that I'm going to give you and I want you to use it because you have to have a place to work through this because he's not going to be here for you. Uh, and so that night, sitting with him up in the intensive care unit, I wrote about 80 pages and I said every single thing I wanted to say, it, it is filled with rage and embarrassment and sadness and shame and everything I needed to say to him that I had been holding in for all these years. And I, I won't say to you, and then it was gone and we've never had a fight since, I, but had she not given me that journal, I don't believe our marriage could have made it. I, mm. I had to exercise the poison that was living in me the same way he did. And the only way I could do it, because I there was no reason to put me in a medically induced coma, nor would it have helped me. The only the only way for me to do it was to write about it um, so that it could just I, I, I literally felt it leaving my body. I mean, it's funny talking to you now. I feel kind of sweaty because I, I can just be back in that moment so quickly. But now it's from very much a bird's eye view of looking down again feeling feeling a lot of um tenderness for then that 40 what was i 43 year old woman who was terrified i mean i i had brought this into my house i brought it into my child's life we had this legal contract of a marriage i and and i had no idea who was going to wake up from that coma or what that was going to look like mm. so um that was a big big piece of it for me. And then we did some marriage counseling, which was part of his um, inpatient. And that was extremely valuable. And I, I, anyone listening maybe will relate to this. So we sat down. So this is like, um, I don't know, probably four weeks after he's um, been, been in the hospital. So he's two and a half weeks, let's say into inpatient rehab. And I, I'm seeing him for about two hours a week. There are visiting hours that I can see him. So we have this appointment and then we're sitting in this man's office and he says to Maz, all right, or he says to us, um, relationships often are three-legged stools. You have you, you have your spouse, and then you have something else that you're focusing on. And it's the something else that you're focusing on that becomes the problem because that becomes your two important legs, you and it instead of you and your spouse. So Maz, what's the third leg of your stool? 
And Maz was sitting to my right and I looked over at him and he said, alcohol. And I thought, yeah, you're damn right it is. And then the therapist turned to me and he said, and what's yours? And I thought, what? I don't have a third leg of the stool. (laughs) And then I thought, it's Quinn. Mm -hmm. I prioritized Quinn. And the more I prioritized Quinn, the less Maz felt necessary. So the more he drank, which meant the less, the more I prioritized Quinn. So I, I can't tell you one started the other. I can tell you it's a chicken and egg kind of conundrum. And as soon as I said that out loud, I thought, well, you know what? We're on a level playing field here. And I can no longer spend time feeling superior that I don't have the problem. You have the problem. My problem was just different than his problem. Mm. Um, and I, I could no longer judge him from a place of, well, I didn't bring any of this into our lives. Now, if he were here, he would tell you, that I did nothing to contribute to that. And he and I have just agreed to disagree. He's free to feel that way. I think there's a big piece of AA that really hammers into people that they must take full responsibility for this situation. Hmm. And I'm not discounting AA. It's worked beautifully at our house, and I know it works for a lot of people, but I don't believe that. Hmm. I don't believe that. There must have been a a certain, I mean, the podcast isn't about him uh, at all, but I'm kind of curious, like he, I'm sure for many alcoholics, especially in relationships like you guys had, there's a sense that that's their superpower and that when they've now given it up, like is uh, Dana still going to think I'm, you know, the it man, so to speak. It's not just the accent, but it's also the the booze in me that makes me, you know, attractive, so to speak. So I'm kind of curious how he overcame, or you guys overcame that together. Quick break here, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. Are you still uncertain what reconditioning is all about? Well, first of all, if you are a therapist or a conditioning or performance coach, you'll understand that these two worlds don't always see eye to eye. Jamie and I have lived in both of these worlds for 50 plus years of combined practice and we know how to bring these worlds together because that's what we've done throughout our careers. We've used this powerful operating system to integrate the strengths of these unique worlds as well as recognizing the contributions of so many other aspects of human performance. That's why we've teamed up with Matt Bush from Next Level Neuro to integrate the overreaching capacity of applied neurology. This new neuro-reconditioning approach is hands down the best system for bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together and creating more robust human beings. Join the reconditioning revolution today. Visit us at reconditioninghq.com. Are you in the world of human performance or do you seek to perform at your best each day physically and mentally? Matrix Fitness is a company dedicated to helping you succeed. Whether you train people for a living or you live to train, Matrix has the equipment to help you make it happen, and they have the guidance and support you need to make your best decisions. Matrix recently engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as their head of performance, and his wealth of knowledge and experience in training people and building leading-edge performance spaces is unparalleled. Mark and the rest of the team at Matrix will stop at nothing to ensure you reach your objectives in human performance. For more information and a free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA and explore the possibilities today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. That was a lot of work. He was convinced that he was a really terribly boring person, that mm. he was, you know, God forbid, a nerdy scientist, and that I was going to look at this sober man and go, oh, wow, you were so much more interesting drunk. And I don't think he quite still believes this almost five years in, but I can promise you he was not at all an interesting trunk. Mm. Uh, he was loud and obnoxious. And if he liked something, then everybody had to like it or it was a problem. And, and he pa- was passed out most of the time. I mean, he was just, he was just a dud of a human being as an mm. alcoholic when in actuality, he's bright and articulate and funny and engaged and kind and all these things. Um, and so it's it's an ongoing conversation where I will say to him, you know, we'll be going out and I'll, I'll sense a little anxiety in him and I'll say, you know, you're not boring, right? And he'll say, yeah, but he still struggles with it. And mm. so 
you know, that's the nature of being alive. We all have stuff we struggle with. We have insecurities. We have truths we tell ourselves that may or may not be true at all. Mm-hmm. And so, um, to my great relief, he has opted to trust that the way I feel about him today is the way he is. And he's just had to let go of thinking that somehow he was a much more interesting person, you know, passed out on the couch with a glass of whiskey in his hand. Mm. How did, um, the experience of that transcendence, um, change you? Uh, well, you know, it, the, the third leg of the stool moment was one of the most profound light bulb moments of my life because I grew up in a household where as children, we were always prioritized. Mm. So it was really all I knew. And gosh, if you were to talk to Quinn today, I don't think he would say, yeah, everything was great with my mom until Maz got sober. And then she dumped me on my head. Um, (laughs) Quinn now lives in a very appropriate place in our collective married lives, our family life, my relationship with him. Um, so that was huge for me to to look at a spouse and say, I will prioritize you. That was huge mm. for me. Um, the other thing that it did was it, it humbled me um, for many reasons, some of them painful and some of them from really beautiful places. I mean, when we went public with this, we knew that we could face a lot of backlash and instead, we were just supported in incredibly profound ways. People were so grateful that we were willing to stand up and open this door so that they too could walk through it. Um, that was humbling. And it continues to be. I mean, sometimes people will reach out to me with really terrible stories of their lived experience with addiction, knowing that I both understand it and can't relate to it at all. And and, you know, I, I only have one experience with it. I, I'm not a therapist mm. with any training. I mean, we certainly don't pretend to be. We don't try to be. We don't diagnose. We don't do any of that. But it's a it's a burden that I feel very privileged to carry and to be part of with Maz. Um, so that it, that changed me that way. And then I think I I took my relationship with him for granted, I think, in a lot of ways. And it made me so much more present in our lives. There were, there were many moments where the doctor would be standing with me. We were, you know, looking at him in the intensive care unit and the doctor would say to me, he may not make it through this. And I have such gratitude that he didn't die an alcoholic because it would have forever embittered me. Mm. around love and relationships and empathy and lots and lots of things. So I love my life now. I love my marriage. I have such incredible regard for him. I I didn't have any of that beforehand. So, you know, sometimes you have to almost lose what you love to realize what it means to you. And then you got to build it back up. Mm. I'm going to read to you from my book. There's a book I, I found a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. It was written by an astrologer named Linda Joyce in New York, who also combined numerology with astrology and comes up I with I think I purpose. have this book, Scott. Will you hold it up so I can see it quick? Okay, I, have a, I have something like it. I love this okay. book. Yeah. I actually had Linda on the podcast uh, early on and things, a really fascinating lady, but I discovered my purpose in it. I'll tell you the story afterwards, but you're a Capricorn two born December 29. Your purpose is to sever your attachment to the past and to, to self pity so that you can reconnect with your spirit, go beyond your dark moods, recreate yourself and achieve a goal that includes the help and healing of others. Every action we take, everything we do is either a victory or defeat in the struggle to become what we want to be and Blythe. Capricorn twos have quite a task ahead of them. They are sensitive and loving and feel as though they are aliens in a world that cares only about achievement. Their mission is to forget what others think. Once they conquer the world, they can help everyone else. Their extra sensitivity makes life either a beautiful place or a living hell. They struggle with excessive mood swings. They need to remind themselves that they are the creators of their universe. They must work hard to achieve a passionate goal, and through the discipline, a new and stable self will emerge. 
church. Once it does, they can begin a spiritual journey and return some of the gifts they were given. The Capricorn too should help others direct their lives and find their center. They have a great capacity to love and heal. If they don't connect with their feelings, they will feel alone. Naturally, a bit different, the difference will make the Capricorn 2 feel ugly and rejected in, instead of unique and natural. Without spirit, they could feel like prisoners of their fears and emotions. They need to be careful of judging others. They need to share their feelings, and their shyness will disappear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is... Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. That is, um, well, crazy I, book, I am yeah. speechless, which almost never happens in my life. I told you I'm a practiced talker. <laughs> wow. well, I, the reason I bought the book was, uh, <clears throat> I tell the story from time to time, was I used to have taped to the top of my desktop the saying, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? That was yeah. my favorite saying. It's kind of who who I'm inspired or what I'm inspired by. And I had that on my desktop for a good 10 years. And then I saw this book and I flipped it to Sag 3, which is what I am. <laughs> and it tell, read my purpose. And I'm like, oh, that's really good. And every time Linda puts in a quote, and the quote was, send men see things as they are and say why. I'm like, what the F? You know? <laughs> yeah, you were. <laughs> and then I read the rest of it. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. So I read it to every guest I have. And I, I would say eight to nine times out of 10, they have a pretty solid reaction to it. So yeah. yours is one of those top 10 type reactions. But yeah, yep. it's cool. And it sounds like you're, it sounds like you're living who you are meant to be through the struggles that you've gone through. So that's a wonderful thing when people find who they are. Um, what's your mission now? What, 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 you know, you've gone through all this and your boys grown up and your husband's your, your best friend kind of thing. What do you, what is your mission to do now in life? So my mission now is to help other people, um, figure out why they're here and uh i'm i'm in a transitional time in my own life so i'm uh i'm a month into my 49th year hmm. which means you know i'm i'm moving right towards that halfway point if you're lucky and live a long life and so i'm i'm highly conscious of that i for the last 11 and a half years have run an arts organization where I um, I became an advocate and an activist in mm. formal ways. I've always been an advocate. I could go back and give you 40 examples of me standing up to somebody when even when I was little. I've always been a champion advocate of things that I believe in. Um, and so this job gave me the opportunity to really formalize that and to, um, you know, finesse it and not be like a, you throw the first punch, you better believe I'm going to match it and go harder, but to figure out, okay, that's not always the best way to advocate for something, despite the fact that I just would love to always throw the first punch. Um, but, but what I, what I believe that I am called to do is, um, help people, rediscover this little spark of what they were born with. Mm -hmm. So you, you tried at the beginning of this conversation to sort of get to the root of, well, how, how did I know I was a movie star? Mm -hmm. Because I just am, because that mm -hmm. is my spark. Um, and I've never questioned it. And I will know that that's why I'm here for the rest of my life. Now, the difference is that um, movie star is the wrong is the wrong profession. It's the right desire, wrong title. Mm. What I am actually is, is I am someone who is in communion with other people, helping them figure out what did I used to know I was before life banged the hell out of me. Mm. And now I find myself here, wherever here is. And here doesn't have to be bad. Mm. My current here is amazing. But I still want more. Mm. And I think that most people do. So my mission now is to, is to help people figure out what that little spark was, see if it, if it resonates for them still, or if they need to sort of revise it, think about it differently the way I've had to. And then most important for me, 
is help them put together a plan to pursue it. Because we've all been to retreats or talks or motivational seminars where you leave and you're like, yes, that's it. I've got it. And then you get home 20 minutes later and you think, wait, what what was that really important thing I was going to remember to do that I didn't even bother to write it down because I knew I'd never forget it? (laughs) I, you know, those moments are such, are such lost moments. So for me, the important piece is, yes, I want to help you recognize you had a spark. It's still there. It might be the tiniest little pilot light. You might really have to dig to find it, but it has not gone out. It's just waiting. Mm. But what do you do with it once you rediscover it? That's the piece that I think I am helping people do. I know I'm helping people do it because they're letting me know that it's making a difference in their lives. So that's Mm. the piece that I'm most excited about these days. And then this daily dose stuff, this there's so much shame around addiction. We've, we've vilified so many people and, and convinced them that they are bad people because they struggle with that. And we really are intending to just continue to say, put the shame down. Yeah, it's a terrible disease. There is no question about it. It is a terrible family-wrecking, community-wrecking disease. But not because you're a bad person. Mm. but because it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, how can somebody find you if they want to connect with what you're doing? You can find me at danadelval.com. So that's D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Um, and I'm just Dana at danadelval.com. If you want to send me an email, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram, and I have a really active blog and I send out a weekly newsletter. So Saturdays, we send out a daily dose newsletter and Sundays I send out an extraordinary newsletter. So um, if anybody's interested in engaging more, I'm happy to be in conversation with anybody who's curious about any of this work. Well, thank you for taking an hour with me today. It's been beautiful. It's really nice to meet you and to travel through your life and see who you are. And Marin was correct in connecting us. So thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate the conversation and the reading, Scott. (laughs) I will be thinking about that reading for a very long time. I can't wait for the podcast to come out so I can go back and listen to it again. Well, I'll take a photo of it and send it to you. Oh, that would be fabulous. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed our time together. Yeah, you take care of yourself and, you and your, your little hubby and your, your big boy, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you. Have a you good take day. Take care, too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.